You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Welcome to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. I'm Jeremiah Johnson, one of the founders of the Center for New Liberalism and the host of the Neoliberal Podcast. For this week's episode of Radically Pragmatic, we're sharing an episode of the Neoliberal Podcast, featuring myself and Lauren B. Lohr, Associate Director of State and Local Policy at Prosperity Now. We're talking about inclusionary zoning, We discuss our different approaches to building more housing, whether inclusionary zoning helps or hurts housing markets, and how to best make housing more affordable for everyone. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. All right, so one of the main things that we're going to be talking about today, we're going to talk about a lot of things related to to housing and the history of of housing in this country and, and how it relates to a lot of different topics. But primarily, one of the things we're going to be talking about is a report that you and and some co-authors put out called Zoning In. Uh, It's part of your work with Prosperity Now. I'm curious for the backstory here. What was kind of the rationale behind why you felt this needed to be written? Why write this report? That's an excellent place to start. Um, So for starters, one, um, we kind of like to keep our ears to the ground of innovative policy solutions that are um, being discussed in both academic settings as well as um, advocacy settings. And so um, the a group of University of Maryland students actually were um, doing some case studies, and um, we basically um, worked with them um, to develop um, some topic areas of policy expertise that we could elaborate on through in-depth research and analysis. And so that's actually how this initially started. Um, It actually originally was going to be a much shorter report, (laughs) more like a briefing, um, but uh, anything probably involving myself will will be elongated (laughs) and elaborated on. Um, And the reason for that is simply this. I don't think that you can talk about innovative policy solutions without addressing the who, what, where, and why, and looking at the historical context. So we could have just put out a report saying, oh, okay, well, zoning reform is something that has come up as an an entity or somewhat of a tool that can be um, aligned with other policy solutions to help ensure that lawmakers um, are accountable for Um, how they go about housing policy solutions and land use. It's important to look at the historical context of things. And if we don't start from literally um, enslavement periods, moving into um, the Reconstruction era, then taking people down this historical um, trip uh, down memory lane for some in a traumatic sense, for others, maybe not so much, but um, looking at um, how predatory lending gentrification, post-GI Bill, redlining, and all of those things have come together to equal where we are today, then we're not going to adequately be able to address um, the policy solutions put forth. So that is what's what's led to that. Well, well let's let's talk about that because, because sure. there's some people who are, you know, might be skeptical of that. You could, you could imagine someone who would say, well, look, I want to solve housing problems, but why do we got to talk about slavery? Why do we got to talk about this and that and the other? Like that was a hundred years ago, Let's just solve the problems today. What, what would be your response to someone who kind of is like, why do we why do we need to talk about this in terms of why you think it is important? Well, first and foremost, if someone is even questioning the importance of it, that's not going to be your audience in the first place. Let's just call it, call it what it is, um, because if you have to question why enslavement, granted, there's an answer for that. We can say that um, that those pieces of history are still tied to us today um, for many black and brown communities and things that are socially constructed or embedded into society from a racial discrimination standpoint 
um, don't wipe away with uh, a little bit more clarity from oppressors. That's just not how that works. Um, but that being said, like I said, that's not going to be your audience anyway, because that's going to come from a more um, conservative and conservative constructed mindset um, that probably is not going to change um, in in the span of a conversation. Um, but for audiences that have a little bit more context and depth um, that understand uh, why that might play a role um, or still does play a role, that would be someone that you can have that conversation with and maybe emphasize just because someone also knows uh, the importance that enslavement and reconstruction and all of the different um, historical things that have played out in the U.S. play a role. Even with them understanding that, that doesn't mean that they're going to understand the reason for that playing or tying into a policy solution. So that would be the conversation you need to have rather than explaining why enslavement and all of the different predatory things that have come from that matter in the in the in the need for the change agency, I guess. So one of the interesting things in, in the report is that there's kind of this theme of housing as being kind of central to the history of, of r racism and inequality. And, and, you know, th those are obviously big parts of American history is you, you can't talk about American history without talking about racism. But can you talk about how housing has played a role in kind of those structures throughout American history? Absolutely. So the interesting thing about the way um, housing has played a role is because housing is, uh, unfortunately, you know, there's a sense of casting the American dream, right? Which, I mean, what does that mean <laughs> in a nutshell as well? But, um, you know, we've really emphasized this uh, building block of how to build the U.S. American family. And a lot of that is built around housing. Um, you know, it's really a necessity, quite frankly, even for employment. You have to stay where you live. <laughs> um, it's a necessity for um, building generational wealth. Um, it's a necessity, quite frankly, for um, cost of living, uh, which again, should not be a thing, but here we are today and it plays a role. So it's kind of a foundational tool um, that links to other policy areas around economic security. Um, and then that being said, how housing has kind of been the central point um, is that it also helps to define communities, right? And how communities grow. So when we look at the destruction of economic gains, a lot of the destruction came from destroying housing opportunities um, and destroying what those potential communities could look like. And then this also plays into education, right? And what incentives and investments go into those communities. You know, part of people picking a neighborhood for um, where to build their family or where to um, potentially send their children to school, where to shop, where to dine. Um, all of those are built around how the communities are built, and that kind of starts with the housing. Now, you can add a, a restaurant here or there to a neighborhood, but if that neighborhood isn't resourced to even be able to fundamentally sustain that area, nine times out of 10, that restaurant is less likely to last or the business in general. So it really does help build our framework for what we define as a sense of community. Yeah, I mean, just there's also just the plain economic reality that like, what's the biggest expenditure that almost yeah, every, it, everybody it, has? I it's, mean, it's, yeah. their, it's either their mortgage payment or their rent, right? That's, exactly. And, you know, if you if you're able to build wealth in America, at least most people tend to build wealth through owning a home. It's a exactly. very common way of doing things. And and so it's uh, it's just central to economic life and housing. Mm -hmm. Agreed. So, I, I guess I I thought one of my the best parts of reading this was kind of going through the history of of kind of unfair and exclusionary zoning, and I'd love to talk about you know the, the modern system of zoning that we have right now. 
didn't come out out of nowhere. It didn't mm-hmm. just, you know, spring into existence, fully formed, you know, from some bureaucrat's mind. It, it kind of was a result of several things. And, and partially that does play into kind of the history of, of how America has treated minority groups throughout the past. What can you tell us about the history of zoning and, and how some of these systems got to where they are today? Sure. So a couple of things around zoning. I think for starters, we need to look at uh, what zoning is and what we and how we define zoning, because I think before we can talk about inclusionary zoning, we have to talk about zoning in general. So for starters, um, when thinking about um, zoning, um, one thing that can be said is that there's different types of zoning, right? Um, you have residential, industrial, um, agricultural, et cetera. Um, neighborhoods that have been up for rezoning have typically been low-income, resource-poor areas because the land is cheaper. So develop- developers can build at a much lower cost and then rent apartments, for instance, at a higher rate, often resulting in gentrification and racialized displacement of minorities. But then another thing that has become a popular popular topic or tool um, is around upzoning, um, another policy trend that seeks to increase development density by tackling inclusion, exclusionary zoning laws. So the practice that has been piloted in a lot of major cities, such as Seattle, Portland, just to name a few, but um, a loosening of exclusionary zoning restrictions um, through how they're building their developments. So through floor area ratios, height limits, bulk requirements, et cetera. So there's more research needed on upzoning as an answer to gentrification um, but there's also more, uh, even more research needed around inclusionary zoning to ensure that it's an equitable process because typically the zoning process um, has primarily been centered around land use, but there haven't been the adequate voices around to address it. So one of the things that this report does is it's kind of a, it's kind of a, an argument for the usefulness of inclusionary zoning. Can you talk about what you mean by inclusionary zoning? Because it's it's funny we say things like exclusionary zoning, mm-hmm. but they're not really opposites. They're they're actually kind of referring to two different ideas. Mm-hmm. So, what is it that you mean when you say inclusionary zoning? So, inclusionary zoning, which also can be known as inclusionary housing, um, are policies that mandate or encourage new residential developments to dedicate a share of homes to low and moderate income families. Um, as a part of more equitable housing strategies. So the, really inclusionary zoning is just the most common method used, which will create specific affordability targets and local land use codes. Um, but in also using the term inclusionary housing, it can also include additional incentives and programs that complement zoning requirements. So um, it really is a way to address zoning laws in general um, and because zoning laws can be changed by a local government as long as they fall within state and federal statutes and a particular plot of land may be rezoned based on consideration. It's really important to have the context around um, land use, around um, local government laws, and around um, voicing around municipalities. Uh, Because I think a lot of people, when they're thinking about I think when they're thinking about housing in general, but also thinking about zoning reform, um, I think it's centrally targeted around the idea of affordable housing, which you could say that to be true, but it's also around the conversation of development. And so it's really important that people tie in the two when diving into inclusionary zoning. How do you think, we're going to get into kind of the the inclusionary zoning discussion in a second, because there's probably going to be some areas where you and I like agree and, and some areas where we disagree. Mm-hmm. But before we get into like the, the nitty gritty of like which policies are good and bad and, and whatever, I'm curious how you see inclusionary zoning working with other tools because inclusionary zoning is one thing that localities can do if they're trying to, 
if their goal is to you know create a, a better housing system and create more affordable housing but there's other things that people advocate like you've mentioned there's just upzoning there's the the idea of just we need to make it easier to build dense buildings there's the idea of you know removing things like you know parking requirements and mm-hmm. adjusting things like setback requirements and far requirements floor area ratio mm-hmm. and there's you know some people complain about the the process that in in certain cities like San Francisco it takes like 30 rounds of community board hearings to get an approval mm-hmm. for something how do you view inclusionary zoning in the context of like the wider diaspora of of kind of policies are, are these things that you know one is better than another that they should be done in tandem they work together like how do you think about it Definitely in tandem. <laughs> Unfortunately, you can't, I don't think anyone could say one is better than the other. I feel like if they do, there must be some incentive behind the scenes for them to say that because I don't I, I don't think that housing is a one size fits all. And there's a couple of reasons, right? Like one, like for inclusionary zoning, um, there definitely should be more accurate um, median income targeting. I think people keep missing the boat on having accurate median income targets that are actually representative of um, the distribution of wealth in their area. Um, A lot of times that's missed the boat and that's kind of a, a starting point there when addressing what low to moderate income could be. Like if you're a city, for instance, anywhere, especially in the DMV, right? Um, um, more so my area, uh, you know, with DC, Arlington, Alexandria, you know, those, um, and you can count Silver Springs, so to speak, and that true DMV nature. But um, a lot of the, a lot of people are, are naturally pushed out of that area. Um, why? There's a couple of reasons. One, and this is, a, is all going to be relative to why I think these things should work in tandem. Um, but for one, the, the, there's a lot of development in those areas. There's a lot of placement for development in those areas. You wouldn't think that. You would think everything's on top of each other, but actually it's not compared to somewhere like New York. Um, it's, it's quite spacious and a lot of um, room to, a lot of room for development. That being said, um, you have to look at what those areas attract, right? They're beautiful areas, a lot of things to do um, socially, professionally. Um, and then it's a higher income area, or the entire DMV area. So when you're talking low to moderate income, it's really going to be placed in a completely different bracket for that area. Like unlike some low to moderate income um, families in other municipalities um and that area lower income could technically be considered 70 to 80,000 and I know that seems it doesn't seem as plausible compared to other areas but in that area the cost of living isn't is really in a much higher bracket so to actually live sustain like sufficiently and, and to sustain a lifestyle um, meaning being able to even get gas, groceries, et cetera, um, it leans in more of a six-figure bracket. So we have to start redefining as, as cost of living has shifted and has um, more capitalist gains <laughs> are, are pushed to the forefront. Unfortunately, that means we have to redefine the median income targets. Additionally, um, other things we can do is actually pair it with uh, actual local government um, legislation or statewide legislation contingent on what it is. So, for example, um, we can look at things like Dillon Rule and Home Rule, which have actually been applied. And if they were applied and paired with something like inclusionary zoning, um, it would have resulted in a, a better case than the case that happened around Dillon Rule and Home Rule in 2009. And just for a little bit of context, um, the Dillon Rule is the principle that local government only exercises powers expressively granted by the state, powers necessary and fairly implied from that grant of power and powers crucial to the existence of local government. So it's based on whether it's something is ruled by state government or local government. And the home rule is granted by state constitution or state statute and allocates some autonomy to a local government. 
Um, and the reason that's important is because when we're talking about um, who are the power builders at B when implementing um, legislation around housing, um, it's really important to be able to know how to make it work in your area. And in some cases, something, if there's a state that, you know, has Dillon rule and home rule statutes, um, it could allot for someone to be able in a municipality to override certain things around legislation. So when we're talking about things around anti-preemption um, or preemption law, where that's that being rent control um, for those listening in, um, that's really important when stabilizing um, the housing community or housing economy for your uh, locality or, or municipality. So that's something that also is going to be really crucial to the accountability around implementing inclusionary zoning. I'm going to stop there because there's more that I could add. But <laughs> <laughs> there's a, there's always more detail we can go into. But, but no, so let, let's let's get into inclusionary zoning itself. So I, I will be honest up front and say I'm probably more of a skeptic that that inclusionary zoning works than than you are. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I I want to do anything possible to make the housing market work better for people mm -hmm. to make, you know, rent cheaper. Everybody wants their rent to be cheaper. I live in the middle of New York. I certainly want my rent to be cheaper. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> give me the pitch. What Give me the, um, the ground level pitch. Why is inclusionary zoning good? Why, why will it help, you know, create a, a better housing market for us? I think inclusionary zoning is something that will address the housing market because there needs to be an accountability tool, especially for those that have been housed out. And this is exactly why the historical context was necessary. At the end of the day, something that benefits black and brown communities are gonna benefit people outside of those communities as well. I think when we start there and realize that that's a factor, maybe we'll have a little bit more equitable policy, who knows? But things that benefit a minority actually are going to benefit a majority. So most of the people saying, well, if that's only going to make it more equitable for black and brown communities, then I don't really care. You can feel whatever way, you, in which way you want, but at the end of the day, it would benefit you too. So things that benefit urban areas benefit rural areas. It's, it's the exact same thing. Um, when there's more opportunity to cast the net um, and ensure that there's more affordable housing, um, it benefits that entire community and helps them to thrive economically. Um, there's less dependence, so to speak, on um, sometimes on federal uh, federal necessity or or, th or things um, for welfare of certain communities when you're able to just give them the adequate housing. Like they're not going to have to depend on certain other entities as much when they're able to build increments of generational wealth themselves. And at the end of the day, you said it, right? It's like homeownership is a vital part of the US quote unquote adulting dream. Like it serves as a symbol of what we have derived as a place to build what some people might define as the nuclear family. Um, and it relinquishes the stress of residential instability. Um, so beyond providing a place of refuge, you know, owning a home, as we mentioned earlier, offers families a store of wealth, long-term investment, um, and asset building. And so we're not gonna be able to shift the home buyer landscape if we don't find equitable solutions. And that's all inclusionary zoning is trying to do. You know, it's funny. I, I have to admit, whenever you say, whenever anybody says adulting, I kind of get a twitch in my eye. Um, so, um, That's why I say it, quote unquote. <laughs> yeah, but I do want to, I, I want to ask about one specific thing, because you talk about anything that benefits, you know, the, a, a minority also benefits the majority, or, or I probably phrased that incorrectly, but I think that there there's a sense in which that's not always true. And I don't mean in the sense of like white people versus black people, mm -hmm. but it, one thing that I see in New York, for instance, is mm -hmm. that there's kind of this caste system almost that gets created with inclusionary zoning in New York, where there will be like a big new apartment building. And there's one group of people who, you know, they're, they won a lottery or something. And so they're getting a subsidized rent in this, um, in the inclusionary zoning section. 
It's like it could be six hundred dollars. It could be a thousand dollars, which you know for New York is incredibly cheap. Mm-hmm. And then the people who are living in the same unit but are not part of the inclusionary are paying four thousand, five thousand, six thousand dollars. And it's kind of like very much the the people paying the market rate are in a different group than this uh, like they're actually not getting any benefit from the fact that inclusionary zoning created a couple units that were that were cheaper. I beg to differ only because, and this is where people have to put privilege aside, right? Like, this is the thing. If that person who might have, you say, won the lottery, so to speak, um, and is able to live in that unit, do you know what that does for their children? If they have children and they're able to put them in the school systems in that neighborhood, or they're able to have adequate um adequate means to grocery shopping or things of that nature, that's going to sustain us overall. Like the benefit, this is where it's a people and community versus non-community. If you choose to have non-community, then that's going to be your mindset moving forward forever. But this idea of people-centric things and community requires their being more equity. And that does mean that some of us, regardless of, I could, it could be some, it could even be myself having to put, as a black woman, having to put some of my privileges aside. But if that means that there is less robberies and less gun violence because people have to figure out how to pay for food for their kids, then yes, I would be happy for that because that's one less thing that someone has to worry about. I think sometimes we have to put ourselves in the mindset of like, if someone was scratching and surviving and they had to do something or had something on the line to pay for food or to pay for or pay for rent and they had to take a route that quite frankly is deemed harmful to someone else i would rather make sure they have adequate housing and sustainability than them to have to go out and shoot something up or rob someone because they couldn't afford to pay their bills or because they were in the midst of medical debt or because whatever the reason may be. People make choices every day, a lot of times to survive. And if we don't start looking at policy solutions from the mindset of someone who um, quite frankly isn't even in the room most of the time, but also um, is coming from a place of desperation a lot of times, then we're never gonna have adequate policy solutions. That, which is important as to why it takes different voices to be at the table when we're talking about inclusionary zoning. If we're talking about inclusionary zoning and it's you know typically a bunch of cisgender, heterosexual, white men, white women, um, or it could be someone that's Latine or black and brown, but have not experienced something from a certain class system or just haven't put themselves in the framework of that um, you're not going to get the type of policy solutions that you actually need that could work. So I definitely hear what you're saying. It's like, well, if I'm paying $4,000 and they're not, I don't think that's fair. Well, I mean, which one would you rather have? Somebody come shoot up your area to get what they need or have somebody actually be able to join join the pot? I, I think I see where there might be like, we're approaching it from different different kind of angles where... I definitely appreciate the the need to we have to focus on people who are vulnerable and there there's people who in a, in a purely market based system right are mm-hmm. are not going to potentially be able to afford rent and and are going to be in desperate straits sometimes and I think that you know it, there's definitely a role for public policy to help pe- to to provide people with with assistance however that may whether that's you know a, a universal basic income or housing specific policies or whatever the case may be. Um, I, I think I would agree with you there, but I'm also, you know, when I look at housing policies specifically, I'm always looking at like what will lower everybody's rent as opposed to like, let's create a couple mm. affordable units for the most vulnerable people. And I'm always looking at like, what can we do for everybody that'll, that'll lower rents for, you know, working class people and middle class people, mm-hmm. and maybe even upper class. Everybody wants lower rents, mm-hmm. even if you make good money. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, I think that's the perspective I come from. And from that perspective, I'm I'm a little more skeptical of inclusionary zoning um, as a tool for everyone, I guess. But but I do see your, you know, it, it's a valid point that 
if we're not doing something to help, you know, vulnerable populations, then then it's it's not going to lead to outcomes that we like as a society. And I think, and I totally hear what you're saying, and I think that this is where there could be some differentiation, so to speak, um, because I think inclusionary zoning is not a tool for everyone. It's going to be a tool for those that have been historically cast out of um, housing opportunities. So that should be set aside, similar to affirmative action not have been a tool for everyone. But I think that there are other policy solutions that could be a tool for everyone, because I completely agree, right? Like, I would love to have um, lower rent or more equitable rent um, in general. And I think that people in upper middle class, middle class um, would also want to benefit from um, lower rent or just even lower mortgages because, you know, many homes at this point are, are closer and closer to a million and up. But I think that's going to be a different policy um, not only policy problem, but policy solution outside of zoning. I don't think that's going to be zoning, going to be zoning specific. I think that policy solutions around adequate rent is that might be more of an anti-preemption issue. Or if we're talking about um, opportunities for just lower housing costs in general, um, then that's going to be a real estate issue. Like there are different issues that they're not all going to be formulated into zoning. So I think when we're talking about inclusionary zoning, we're talking about a very, very, very specific niche of an issue. And I think when we're talking about the housing crisis in general, that's going to be relative to a lot more other things, including that of inflation, um, that aligns, but is not the same thing. So one of the one of the things I always like to talk about, and we've we've had many housing guests on this show, is just you know the need to build more housing in general uh, mm. of all kinds, whether that's uh, public housing, affordable housing, market rate housing. That just especially in our biggest cities, it seems to me like we just need more housing, and there's a lot of barriers to getting to making that happen. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the concerns, and I, you even call this out in the paper, is like areas of possible concern is the idea that inclusionary zoning might harm that effort, that there's some evidence or some research that, that maybe suggests that um, it when you implement an inclusionary zoning policy and you say 20% of all new units have to be marked as affordable mm. at, a, at a, some, some kind of baseline, right? Mm -hmm. That that's going to cause people to build less housing overall and it's going to make the problem worse. So... Do you think that's a, a fair criticism? Do you think it's true, false, or partially true? Or, you know, what's the state of how you think about that? Absolutely think it's a fair criticism. And that's, you know what, that is also why we included the critiques in the report, because we're all about uh, real policy solutions, and that requires addressing um, the criticisms that come with that. I feel like we would be dishonest by not <laughs> including the criticisms that come with that. And uh, some, so some of this is going to be a development issue in addition to it being a density issue in areas. It's also going to be a local government leadership issue. <laughs> and the reason I say that, um, which is why it's not a one size fits all approach with inclusionary zoning, is that in a lot of metropolitan areas, there's been questioning of what actually will work to include housing supply. Um, unfortunately, that's going to be contingent on how people, how developers and cities work together to actually define zoning areas. Um, it's going to be really difficult to keep units affordable when also thinking about the supply of housing that's created. But for instance, if you, okay, so if you take again DC, which people are always, criticizing that, okay, there's never enough adequate housing that's reasonable because you either have a million million dollar areas or you have some um, more government 
assisted areas. Um, so there's not really range of the in-between, right? Which we talked about. I mean, there has to be in-between affordability for those that are bordering middle to upper middle class. But that being said, I think that it requires lawmakers or elected officials and developers to think a little bit more strategically, which unfortunately you just don't want to put that kind of power in their hands. But they would have to think about, if it were me thinking about ways to address um, the housing supply, I would probably think about how we're um, addressing uh, housing permits in that area. If I were thinking like a developer, I would try to maybe increase some of the incentives for developers around um, building more affordable housing. That way there's more resource on their end to be able to um, spread the housing supply. Um, I would also... Can, can I break in right there? Oh, yes. There, it's an interesting, you said incentive. There are some places that when they implement this inclusionary idea, mm -hmm. there's some places that just mandate it, that say... True. Okay, you, every new development uh, or, you know, sometimes Must there's a include, rule like, yeah. it's a, it, like over 20 units or something mm -hmm. like that, right? But it, just to simplify, they'll say like every new development must include X percent. And sometimes X is like 10. Sometimes it's like 50. Mm -hmm. But um, some, some, you could call that mandatory. But then there's some places that are more like, if you do this, we'll just subsidize the affordable unit. And you don't have to do it, but it's a it's an option you have. Mm -hmm. And or or they might say if you do affordable housing, if you include a certain number of affordable units, then we'll actually loosen some restrictions for you. We'll let you build mm -hmm. higher, or we'll let you you know this will be as of right instead of having to go through the discretionary process mm -hmm. where you know angry homeowners scream at you for building an apartment tower or what mm -hmm. you know whatever the case may be. Um, so. Do you have like a, a a thought or or a preference as to like which of these systems you believe is is a better system? The reason that I lean towards, and I say this with a, a heavy side, just because I it's going to be contingent on the city, honestly. Um, but if I wanted to think overall, the reason why I lean towards the mandates. Um, is because I think from a elected official standpoint, um, you can glean into incentivizing developers more. And I think that's unfortunately the, the main route to go. I don't think that it's the sole route to go. I do want to say that, emphasize that again. But for instance, um, and, and Jeremiah, we kind of spoke about this, um, you know, HUD announced... Uh, this new proposal, this was literally a couple of days ago, um, literally on the, the on January 19th, but um, announced uh, this affirmatively furthering fair housing rule. So this will be a federal rule that will strike down to states and municipalities, but you're trying to use it as a way to address inequities in housing and to have more inclusive communities, right? So one thing they're pushing out with this rule and it's it's basically they're trying to fulfill the promise that you know the 1968 Fair Housing Act instituted. So one way they're trying to address the discriminatory housing and, and ensure inclusionary zoning but also this addresses somewhat of uh, developer incentives um, is that um, it will further the fair housing mandate on the federal level um, and will also create, or I guess streamline some of the fair housing requirements for local community states and public housing. Um, and so some of that includes, um, includes uh, coupling it uh, or requiring equity plans um, and the omnibus financial incentives around land use. Now, I don't think that this can be used in a sole direction, I think, but I think if you have a mandate, you have this federal rule, right? And then you combine that with 
some additional things, for instance, like combining it with uh, community cooperatives. So let's say, for instance, if we take, I'm just going to keep using D.C., um, but let's take D.C., Let's say we have this federal rule. Every policy wonk's favorite because all the policy wonks live in D.C. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremiah, don't call me out. Okay, I feel like I should use somewhere else now. Um, you know what? I will. I will. I, I mean, I, will it's, I mean, it's the, fine. D.C. does have interesting policies sometimes. Yeah, I mean, well, D.C. already had inclusionary zoning. That's why I used it. But I will, you know what? I'll use somewhere that could grow in that area. So I'll use where I'm originally from, um, which is Detroit. Uh, and Detroit actually has a land bank authority um, as well to address some of the uh, more local housing um, issues around discrimination. But, um, okay, let's take Detroit. You have the federal rule. Detroit is a, a high concentrated area of gentrification um, with developers. That's not even a secret at this point. Um, and then you combine that with this mandate, right? And then let's say in addition to having the land bank authority, there is a push around um, more, more cooperative ownership of land. So like more rocks or resident owned communities um, where let's say someone, a local, let's say a mayor and city council decide to implement that they now have rocks in their area or resident-owned communities, and now they have purchasing power um, and put that in the hand of the community so they purchase some of the land, then that will help to ensure that, one, the communities have more affordable housing, but then also developers would have to work with the rocks, plus have the federal... It's just almost like doubling down on the mandate or tripling down in that matter on the mandate rather than just having the mandate and leaving it up to elected officials and developers, mostly developers. So it would have to be combined with that um, or possibly even um, a CDFI, a community development financial institution um, that can help address not only making sure you have um, affordable housing for low income areas, but it also could possibly help for moderate income because if the income in that area, so let's say for instance, in your area in New York, if most of the people that live around you are more so like moderate income, maybe middle class, maybe a few upper middle class, but mostly middle class area, then if you have a CDFI or a ROC, it's gonna be based on who lives in your area. So the affordable housing will be for your area, for you. So that may not include anybody low income, but if you planning to um, push inclusionary zoning in that area, I think that's how, and I think that leads back to your question, like how would it benefit other individuals? Well, that's one solution. It's again, inclusionary zoning solely by itself won't, but if you combine it with those other things, it would. It, it's interesting. I see it, part of my frustration from this is, my frustration with just how hard it is to build housing in general. Yeah, like th I didn't say a, it was easy. <laughs> and there's um, like there's a a project that that's being built near me. It's mm -hmm. it's in Midtown New York, mm -hmm. and it's been proposed basically since like 2007 or something. They mm -hmm. still have not broken ground. Um, mm -hmm. it, it got approval late last year and then it's still being appealed. So this is like 15 years in the making. Mm -hmm. And the latest like thing that people are complaining about is that, you know, after 15 years of fighting, they got a certain amount of, you know, low income guarantees for how many units they're going to be, but they didn't get as many middle income unit guarantees. And so now there's a whole nother round of community hearings going on. Mm -hmm. and, and part of me just wants to say like, look, nothing is getting done like we have to build something at some point mm -hmm. and you know like, like one of the stats i pulled up when i was um researching this episode I, new york city has eight and a half million people in the first 25 years of the city's inclusionary zoning program it produced 172 units um over the course of 25 years and so it, essentially it's doing nothing you know at, at, at first order effect and, and so really the only thing that matters is not those 170 units. It's 
what is the broader market doing of housing? Like, are we building enough housing generally? And and the- Agreed on that. And I know we're coming up on time, so I just want to add this to um, because I completely agree. But one thing that I want to point out from the example you gave is that inclusionary zoning wasn't the problem or isn't the problem in New York. It's the leadership that's implementing the inclusionary zoning. So some of the examples that we gave um, as like sample takeaways of actual progressive inclusionary zoning, although there's always ways to address housing, but some of the examples or takeaways we gave um, was Atlanta uh, had um, a promising inclusionary zoning program. DC's has gotten better within the t- actually within the time frame that we wrote the report. I, I would be remiss um, if I didn't point out that Atlanta also just builds just a crap ton of housing of, of all kinds, you know, in in and out agreed. of the city area. But they, ha- so I mean, it's but obviously they, helpful when you when you do <laughs> exactly. that. Exactly, <laughs> but clearly that means they know what they're what they're doing at least at least to address housing. Um, but also um, Montgomery County or MoCo um, in Maryland um, actually has pretty successful inclusionary zoning programs. But again, it's going to be based on the leadership too. Like you can, it's kind of like when, when you have a, if we're like saying, for instance, going more in the democracy front, right? I mean, you can have democracy and voting as a tool, but if you're not having the right leadership to implement um, policy around democracy, it's not going to be successful. Same with environmental policy, which, by the way, I've worked in both of those policy areas in my my past career. Um, but same around that when people are thinking about energy policy, climate change, et cetera, you can put policies forth to address those issues. But if you don't have the right leadership to implement it, it's not going to be successful. So I know that puts a lot of pressure and emphasis on the elected officials because you're like, well, I mean... What are we supposed to do? (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's like, unfortunately, unfortunately, that's a huge proponent of this. I mean, how long has has HUD been in existence before finally coming up with this um, housing rule on the federal level? You know what I mean? I it's just like, and that was what addressing something from 1968, like it's 2023. So a lot of it, and I'm not putting this on anyone. regardless of leadership, regardless of partisanship, I'm not calling anyone out. I'm just saying that in general, it falls a lot on the leadership. They might think they have a good idea, but if they don't know how to properly implement it, which means it might require more people who do the research around inclusionary zoning um, to be at the forefront when helping to, when they're helping to develop um, these policy solutions. And that being said, I also want to plug that Around inclusionary zoning, I don't think it's the type of policy that you can just, okay, say, I'm going to implement this in my my state or my municipality, and then boom, we're good. I think it requires having an advisory board around that, and I think that actually should be required as part of the mandate. Because, uh, because there have been so many issues around housing policy, there should actually have to be, in addition to, as a part of the mandate, an entire advisory board. Um, or, and or steering committee that helps to ensure that the inclusionary zoning policy is actually implemented adequately. Because without that, then you're relying on the elected official that decided to bring it forth. And I don't think that's successful, in my honest opinion. All right. Well, we are coming up on time. So I want to ask the traditional final question that we ask everybody on this podcast. And that is, where should people go to learn more? I will point them first to the uh, report that you guys put out, which is um, called Zoning In, How Inclusionary Zoning Increases Affordable Housing for Communities of Color to Build Wealth. It's from Lauren B. Lohr and co-authors. But other than your own work, is there anything else that you would recommend for people who are interested in this topic? Uh, What should they be reading or following? Certainly. Um, So in addition to our work, of course, I'm going to plug us the most, but um, Urban Institute has some great research, uh, especially uh, looking at a few different case studies. And in regards to this recent ruling, um, they did put out um, a case study that addresses that as well. And you can find that on the Urban Institute website. Um, It's they did a report on um, budgets and land use. 
Um, and it's called, I'll actually tell you what it's called. It's called Tracing the Money, Case Studies in the Budgetary and Zoning Policies of Exclusionary Municipalities. Um, they just released it, their report um, in January. So we released our report first, but there's this is a great follow-up that expands on the conversation that we released um, that I think would really help people dive into more of the land use piece of it, um, which seems to be uh, the biggest concern um, in, in relation to uh, zoning policy in general. Um, and then also too, I mean, I think it's important to stay abreast and, and, and keep accountable um, local municipalities as they're making announcements. So I would say that's how I actually found out about the DC announcement. <laughs> Um, and so, although it's part of my job as well, but I will say that um, staying abreast of that, especially as they're making changes to um, lending programs, um, to preemption use, it's just really important to, to continue to stay plugged in. And honestly, I'm going to encourage more individuals that are listening. Um, you know, zoning boards are appointed. Um, I, also, I am a city commissioner, actually. Uh, in Alexandria, I was one in Michigan and uh, the city of Southfield as well. So um, I've been one for going on almost 10 years. But um, in addition to uh, part of that is being a part of the zoning board. And I highly encourage looking into appointments for that because not only will it help you learn more about your area to help you to infuse your voice. And I'm always going to push infusing your voice more. God knows we need more people, the pro-housing people on community boards and zoning boards and you know, yes. all that kind of stuff. So <laughs> we will link all the all the stuff that you mentioned, uh, the reports and things like that. We will make sure to link those in the show notes for anyone listening. Um, but I want to thank my guest today, Lauren Belor. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Jeremiah, for having me and just the openness to have this conversation, this dialogue. Um, I loved the um, the synergy that was here today, and hopefully uh, was a lot of takeaways. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.